0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkinette in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank?
1: Good morning, David. I'm great, thank you.
0: Now, Frank, you may not know this. You may not realize this. Tomorrow will be the fifth anniversary of our first episode. You're kidding. Our first episode we recorded immediately after uh, Trump's inaugural address, uh, which is, was on the 20th of January. We recorded the first episode on the 21st of January. Uh, so so happy five years,
1: uh, David. I didn't get you anything. I feel like uh, has the spark gone out of our relationship? I forgot the date. I feel terrible. terrible. Uh, I didn't get you anything either, friends. So, so so uh, fifth anniversary. What is that? You know, no you know, idea. Is it a paper? It's Paper or something. All right. or,
0: <laughs> listeners, look, so somebody, somebody probably knows this to let us know what anniversary it is and so we can get ourselves appropriate gifts. Oh, congratulations. Yes, five years is something. In, in, in podcast years, that's like 50 or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> and, well, we should say for those listeners who've stuck with us through five years, years. yes, thank you, you if, guys are the it's ones who deserve the gifts. Thank
0: you for those of you who've listened to, to us ramble for, for close to 200 episodes over five years. Right. Um, among the, the new stories that some people may have missed uh, in the recent past uh, was a story uh, first reported, I think, in Politico, that Trump supporters in Michigan and Arizona had filed forged documents with the National Archives that incorrectly certified Trump uh, as the winner of the Electoral College in those states. And subsequent reporting has discovered forgeries submitted from other states, including Georgia, uh, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Uh and so we thought it'd be fun to talk about forgeries in American history, and and what who has been forged and why they've been forged, and the impact of any of these forgeries have had on the course of American history.
1: Yes, yes. So, 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 David, about these these false returns that were yes, I didn't know you could file things that regular citizen can file things with yeah, the National I, Archives anyway. Apparently,
0: we can send something in the mail, and and you know, so these these you know alternate sets of electors sent. Documents and, and the interesting thing about them is they all actually look remarkably similar to each other. The formatting from these different states seems very similar, whereas the actuals or real certification from from these states is all formatted very differently because each state has their own particular set of paperwork that they used for doing this. Um, but yeah, they submitted them to the National Archives.
1: And was it intended? I mean, on one hand, we have to admire their. Um, Gumption, yeah, gumption. I think <laughs> gumption. We're going to talk a lot about the nineteenth century today. Gumption, gumption is a good, is a good word, word. Uh, in the sense that it's it's um well, we love libraries and archives as historians, so it's nice to see that others, you know, are so interested in them, in, interested in them that they're trying to manipulate them, right?
0: I guess, I mean, maybe, <laughs> uh, but I mean, presumably they could then what? I, it's hard to know what their motivations are, but that maybe in you know six months, they might say, hey, look, in the National Archives, there are the real returns or something from these states, and Trump should be uh, returned to powers. I have no fascinating. idea. Fascinating. Right, okay. Uh, it's hard to get in the minds of, of, of conspiracy theorists
1: and whatnot. Sure. But, uh, but in talking about the history of forgery in the United States, and we've got a number of... There's lots of it, really it, fascinating examples. There are. There are. Uh, this, this could be a four-hour episode if we're <laughs> not careful. Um, do we need to draw a distinction between forgeries and hoaxes? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's
0: a variety of different motivations that cause people to create fake documents, right? I think there are uh, you know, some people who are doing it because they think it's going to be like a literary hoax. They think it's going to be funny. They're going they to like pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. You know, I think about the um, well, sort of the, the one that comes to mind is Sid Finch, the, the fake player for the New York Mets who threw 150 miles an hour and had the article about it in the in sports illustrated and it was an april fool's joke and it but but it caught everyone off guard for 24 hours or something uh back in the days before the internet in the uh, mid-1980s
1: right and or there's the famous literary hoax in the 18th century you know the poems of ocean written by james mcpherson the scottish poet and writer and, and jefferson gets taken in by that along with many others thinking this is a kind of rediscovered medieval text, text sure are those forgeries or are they, as you say like uh, are they well
0: uh, you know I think people there is also the the category of, of forgers who do it for fame or money, right And I think that's a slightly similar but but a different category of people. Um, you know there, there was a case in, in 1928 of a California woman who has claimed to have inherited a bunch of love letters from Abraham Lincoln and and Rutledge. And ends up getting them published, and there's the thing in the Atlantic Monthly about them. It turns out they're all nonsense, that they're fake letters. Uh, Presumably they're doing that for attention rather than more than anything else. Um, But I think there's a separate category of, of forgeries that actually have a sort of a political motivation behind them. People who are trying to accomplish something through creating a fake document or through, you know, creating kind of a fake history to, to, to justify some political objective they may have in the present.
1: As opposed to just doing it for money or attention or doing it to make mischief. Jeff, or... Exactly.
0: Yeah, I think those would be the two categories I would, I would think of.
1: Right. Okay. I mean, I, I, let's talk about some examples because we got some great, great examples uh, this week. Uh, the first one I've got, and I came across this when I was finishing my current book manuscript, is a letter from 1797 to George Washington. Now George Washington is going to figure in some of the other examples we give later, but those are people forging Washington's uh, letters or signature. In this case, this was a letter sent to Washington by a man named John Langhorne in Virginia. He sent it from Charlottesville uh, to Washington, who was then retired at Mount Vernon. And the Langhorne letter, Langhorne purports to be a Federalist, so he's a supporter of Washington, writing to Washington, who's now in retirement, and basically saying the way you've been treated by the press um, is really, really terrible. And I'm just expressing some sympathy for you. It's it's really despicable how you've been treated. He's writing this in the aftermath of a letter by Jefferson that was published in 1796 that was critical of Washington. The story of that doesn't need to Detain us, but there was a this led to the rift between Jefferson and Washington that, that was never healed. Um, and Lang the Langhorn letter comes after that. Washington didn't respond because he didn't know who Langhorn was. And the postmaster in Charlottesville eventually wrote to Washington to say you know, I think this letter is a, a fake or well, Washington sent a very non-committal response and it mm. sa- it sat uncollected so he did send a, a brief response but he wrote to Washington to say you know you, you, you need to be wary about this because this Langhorn guy is is actually it's a fake it was Langhorn was actually a man named Peter Carr Peter Carr was one of Thomas Jefferson's nephews he has two nephews um, Peter and Daphne Carr who are later identified as possible fathers of Sally Hemings. I was thinking, I knew that name, and that's where I knew it name from. So he's involved in a different scandal later, or or, uh, implicated in in that. Um, And it's not clear why Peter Carr wrote this letter. It's not clear whether Jefferson knew about it. I suspect he must have known about it, but there's no evidence to support that suspicion. Um, It's a supposition on my part. But he may have been writing to to Washington to say to elicit a response from him to get him to dish the dirt on Jefferson and say something nasty about Jefferson that, that, that then they could then be published. published. Exactly. I think that's what he was trying to do. So sort of catfishing he, yeah, George Washington. Yeah, that's So okay. he did, the, did so, however. By, it's not quite a forge letter because he created somebody. It's an artifice rather than a forgery, I suppose, uh, because he was pretending to be somebody... To elicit a response, and that's one of the earliest examples I can think of. I think it fits into your political category. Yes, I think
0: that's definitely with somebody, you know, there's no clear financial benefit.
1: So, okay. and it's av- of a piece of some of the later ones we're going to talk about, I think, in the sense that it's certainly politically motivated, although, as I said, the motivation's not entirely clear, to me at least, and it seems rather hand-fisted, and Washington just ignored it or did, didn't reply after the his initial response. So that that's one of my earliest ones. But then, speaking about Washington, or or people uh, forging Washington documents, this is going to be very popular in the 19th century and going into the 20th century. And one of the earliest of these is a man named Robert Spring. And Robert Spring was born in 1813. He was actually born in England. uh, And he emigrated to the United States. He was based in Philadelphia. He opened a bookshop in Philadelphia. And it's interesting, a lot of these people who are involved in forgery, it seems to me, are involved in either the book trade or publishing in some way. And that might be... Why. Well, they, they
0: need to know how to get their, their fake material sort of into the system. That's
1: right. That's right. And Spring starts, he, he, he begins by uh, forging Washington's signature, and then he kind of makes a career of forging letters by Washington and others but particularly Washington throughout the middle decade the, the during the antebellum period and and after the the civil war he appears in court he's arrested several times for this um, what he he goes to canada at one point and when he's in canada he poses as the widow of an a collector of documents who's fallen on hard times and tries to sell her her former husband's um, collection to people he goes back to Baltimore he goes back to the United States he's, he went to Canada to, to evade the law he eventually goes back to the United States he's based in Baltimore then he sets up a kind of sideline and I'm interested to hear your views on this he starts selling autographs and documents particularly aimed at a British audience especially in England mm. Um, and he poses as the daughter of Stonewall Jackson. So he, he, he adopts two personas, and in both cases they're women. He, mm. he pretends to be this widow first, and then he pretends to be the daughter of Stonewall Jackson. And he's selling... she well, He, as Stonewall Jackson's daughter, sells Stonewall Jackson documents, but also claims to have in the Stonewall Jackson papers documents from Jefferson mm. and Washington and others and so uh, and he's selling these in in Britain and the most of my information on this comes from the uh, editors of the modern edition of the Washington papers um, and and there are about 150 or 200 documents that the Washington papers now hold that are actually Robert Spring, forgeries of Washington's... at least 200 at documents. least to, well and and Dorothy Tuhig, who's one of the early editors the earlier editors of the papers um, says at least that there's a that this is the tip of an iceberg that there are probably hundreds and hundreds of, of them out there and that many institutions and individuals probably genuinely believe that they own a Washington document or a Washington autograph that's actually a product of Robert Springs efforts. Yeah. And Spring ends up dying he, he he has several brushes with the law, keeps getting caught. Um and and he eventually dies in poverty appropriately in 1876 in the year of the centennial. But he's one of the earliest people, he's an archetype cuz we're going to see a number of people like this, I think, and then one or two you you can yeah, discuss. Yeah. But I don't know what do you make of this cuz I I brought I'm bringing this to so you Well, show
0: the you know the the, the, the him Adopting this this role either as as a widow or as the the daughter of somebody, I think that you know the the I'm assuming that is to try to inculcate trust in in whoever it is that he is selling the documents to, right? Like the 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 widow doesn't know what she has; she is destitute, the sort of uh, you know impoverished uh, you know member of the family who's trying to sort of live off of the that that that. And there's a rhetorical trope that 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 he's playing upon uh, to to. explain why she is selling documents so cheaply it's because they're in poverty and need to liquidate the only asset they have. That's that's an interesting read. There's a lot of forgeries though in the late 19th century that seems to be a real time in which tricking audiences into believing something that's not real Partially for profit, partially for for other reasons, seems to be very very prominent.
1: You know. Yeah. And why if, is that? This is your sanctuary of deceit, David. Well, sanctuary. Well, <laughs> well, I think I think there's there's
0: two explanations that come to mind. One is I think that that by the end of the 19th century, you are really having a a nostalgia and a collecting boom for things from the early republic. You're having the founding, the founding and from the Civil War. You know, and so. Your Lincoln documents or Stonewall Jackson documents, obviously they both died um prematurely for um uh, very in various ways. Um the uh you know, so there's a limited number of documents, people want to have a connection to those figures, they want to have a connection to the, the founding, you know, with the the centennial and, and afterwards people wanna have a way of, of connecting to that physically, and so I think there's there's that. And there is the you know, the, it is the great age of, of hoaxes with, you know um, P.T. Barnum and what have you trying to, you know, fooling the public was, was seen as being, if not virtuous, at least something that was uh, part of the culture, you know, because P.T. Barnum is passing off fake mermaids and all other kinds of, of, of uh, fabrications as real and are getting people to buy it. So I think it sort of fits in parcel with the with Who, the who
1: are our top guys because uh, in terms of the, the subjects of forgery, not, not the forgers? I mean, it seems to be Washington and Lincoln are near the top of the list. One thing I'd say about Robert Spring is he also goes the other way. One of the rarest American autographs and documents is Button Gwinnett, Gwinnett yes. the signer of the Declaration <laughs> of Independence from Georgia, and Spring forges his signature, too. And Actually, lots of people forge his signature. Do you want, you want to explain why his signature is so rare? Well, because there are completists out there, people who want to collect them all, like Pokemon, and get <laughs> all 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, and he's the, he's the rare, rare one. Right. Washington signed Signs lots thousands of, of documents. Um and so, well, Washington's not a signer of the Declaration He's of Independence. Sorry, but but uh, Jefferson is. You know they Adams they've signed thousands and thousands of documents, so they actually have lots of signatures in circulation. Button Gwinnett didn't sign a lot that <laughs> well, survived.
0: Well, I think he he died shortly thereafter. That's right. Sure, that's right. So, that's right. So, so um, Button
1: Gwinnett is the rare the rare so one if, the listener. If you have a
0: Button Gwinnett signature at home, either it's probably fake, but if it's not, um, you know you've got your retirement set.
1: But interestingly, and um. There are people who now collect Robert Spring forgeries. So these themselves have a, have acquired a value, even though they're fakes. Huh. Like, um, and and uh, well, the New York Public Library has a whole collection of forgeries uh, of various people. And, and so these are the these themselves. So, so people, according to some of the reading I did for this, um, People tend to respond in two ways when they hear about these. On one hand, they deny it. They are, or they, they genuinely believe the document they have is is real, and it's difficult to prove to them otherwise. Yeah. But there is a, if you will, a kind of secondary market. Might be the wrong way to frame it, but there is also a market for spring forgeries because they themselves are old now, and their historic. evidence and their historic yeah. evidence of this kind of weird fraudulent america you were just describing from the 19th well, century
0: you know another forger um, who forges both jefferson stuff and lincoln stuff uh, who is also collected is is joseph cozy do you, yeah, yeah, you want know, to no you do you okay, well, talk a lot but, to okay, you so, about joseph cozy joseph cozy is this fascinating figure from the very early part of, of the 20th century uh, he seems to have started forging career when he was in just out of the army he enlisted in, in 1909. He gets kicked out of the army um, for assaulting somebody, and he f- gets a dishonorable discharge. He forges an honorable discharge so he can then sort of use that to get a, a you know, a, seem to be a respectable citizen. He, in, in the next sort of decade, he's involved in a whole series of small crimes, um, stealing stuff, fake checks.
1: He steals a Franklin signature from the Library I'll, of Congress, Well, I'll right? get to that. Oh, sorry. So he's, doing, he's,
0: he's a small crime criminal, but he's also fascinated with American history. So he actually does seem to have a real love. So he goes to He'd the— He'd be a
1: listener to the Whiskey Rebellion I'm sure no, he would.
0: Well, he was also an alcoholic. So, you know, that would fit in well with the—you would probably think we're a drinking podcast. Anyway,
1: um,
0: so he goes to the Library of Congress, and he asks to see, like, a bunch of old documents and and— they Like the Library of Congresses, they let him look at a variety of things. And he looks at signatures of things. He looks at lots of old things from the Revolution. And he steals a pay warrant endorsed by Ben Franklin. And then he takes that and manages to smuggle it out of the Library of Congress. Listeners do not do this. They frown upon this activity. Um, but then he takes it to a New York book dealer and tries to sell... The real Ben Franklin autograph. And the book dealer says, no, that's a fake. Not buying it. And Cozy apparently got mad at this. And says, well, if I can't sell a real document because people think it's fake, why don't I try to sell fake documents and see if people will buy those as real? So he then goes and he forges a scrap of paper with Lincoln's signature on it. Goes back to the same book dealer and sells that for $10. And that sort of begins his career of forging all kinds of people. He forges Lincoln. He forges Washington. He forges Mark Twain. He forges Edgar Allan Poe. He makes up some new uh, stanzas for the Raven. Because um, why not? Button Gwinnett, uh-huh. he forges him because, of course, he would. Um, he forges uh, a draft by in, Jeffers, which, in Jefferson's hand of the Declaration of Independence and um, you know, he's eventually arrested in, in 1937 um, with a, when he tried to sell a fake Lincoln document. But he put into circulation hundreds and hundreds of, of fake texts. Um, and you know some of these are now collectibles because they are supposedly good fakes, or at least historic fakes. Um,
1: he was more ambitious than Robert Spring and did things like create documents, yep. whereas Spring... Tends to write shorter things Things. or sign, you know, Washington signing a pass for somebody or things like that. But whereas Cozy seems to, I think he got more ambitious
0: as he went along. So I think he originally started with selling signatures, and then it was you know copies of of real documents that he would fake, and then he started to, you know, create his own documents in in the style of of historic figures, Um, and so he, I think. He liked the and he talked about this one of the times when he got arrested. He didn't like to f- pass off his fakes to to amateurs. He liked to pass those fakes to professionals because he liked the idea of tricking a professional bookseller, a professional collector, that they were buying a real uh, historic document when in fact he had just scribbled them yeah, the day before.
1: So, would you say that that Cozy um, is a is of that nineteenth-century tradition because he he's he's born in eighteen eighty-seven, so he's most of his activities in the twentieth century. almost yeah. all of it. I mean, he, I don't think he was a thirteen-year-old forger. Maybe yeah no. uh. So so, but but he seems he seems to have more in common with Robert Spring than some of the later people we're going to talk about. Is I think, that, is that I, think fair?
0: So. I, I think so. I mean, he seems to be addicted to it. Um, there seems to be a, a a thrill that he gets out of, of, of forging things, um, and he. Part seems to be motivated in part because he, he was a, an alcoholic. He couldn't hold down a real job. Uh, you know, the the first thing he the first Lincoln signature he forged he was for ten dollars so he could go have drinking money. So uh, there may be an addiction there on, on two levels, uh, happening an addiction to, to alcohol and an addiction to, to forging. Uh, but there's one uh, sort of fake document from the this time period that I think is is really. Well, there's a bunch, but there's there's a couple that I want to sort of highlight. Sure. One is the the Kensington Rune Stone, um,
1: taking the meaning of document. Uh, yeah, well, in, okay, in a new so, text. <laughs> uh, so text. So it's, yeah. it's not
0: a it's not a piece of paper. It's actually a huge stone that was allegedly discovered in central Minnesota in 1898 by a Swedish immigrant who was a farmer. and He was plowing. He comes across this big stone. And uh, it's huge. It's like 200 pounds, uh, thick piece of stone. And it has these runes on it that describe Scandinavian explorers from the 14th century traveling to Minnesota. Where there
1: happened to be a lot of Scandinavian settlers in the late 19th century. century. (laughs) Right. So that means,
0: and I think that's what fascinated people about it because here we've got a Scandinavian immigrant discovering a. Scandinavian text that seems to legitimize settler colonialism and displacement of native peoples, and say, actually, look, we were here a long time ago, and so this land belongs to us. Um, you know, and this is at a time in which the the, the stories of Leif Erikson going to Vinland and all that kind of stuff were very prominent in in um, certain circles. Uh, they had been at the um, World's Columbian Exposition just a few years beforehand in Chicago, a, a Viking ship to sort of symbolize, look, Columbus was important, but there were actually these people before Columbus. And so there was a, a lot of rhetoric about that in popular discourse. And so you know when he comes up and says, look, here's the stone that proves that not only did they make it to Newfoundland, but they made it all the way to Minnesota, because sure, why not? Um, although Minnesota is pretty far from Scandinavia. You got to make a serious hike um when they take the stone to experts basically all of them say no this is a complete forgery the the runes are wrong the text is wrong the line it's like it doesn't it's just fake except for uh one guy who says actually I think it's real and he he makes a career out of a guy named uh, Heilmar Holland who was a also a uh, Scandinavian-American, who said, look, this stone is real. I'm going to prove it's real. He writes a whole series of books about it. He gets it displayed at the Smithsonian. Um, and the stone today, is, there's a museum dedicated to this stone in the town where they found it in, in, in Minnesota, uh, where you can go and see this stone. And there are still people who say, actually, I think this stone is real and this proves that, you know... Our- what do the runes say? They say basically we are Vikings and we have traveled a very long way uh, in this particular year, and they sort of they'd put note the year uh, and have come here and have left the stone. It seems like the, you know what you would imagine a a, a really a amateur forger to say in a stone like.
1: Sure, that. but 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 this this farmer on whose land it was discovered um, would have had to have some knowledge of runes in order to. Do that, or could it be easily disproved by experts, archaeologists who could read Nordic runes?
0: Well, so so the the people at the time said uh, the experts said like, look, these are runes, but like they're not the right runes for this particular century, sure. and there's a you know where exactly the stone came from. I think is still a matter of debate whether the farmer made it, whether they. Um, Somebody else made it. There people have said that Holland, the guy who went on to make a career, may, he may have made it. You know, that part is the, the actual original forger has still been undetermined. But, but it, it's an artifact that has, um, you know, every so often you'll see an article where somebody says, oh, actually, I think this might be real. And then people say, no, it's really not real. But uh, people want it to be real. And I think the idea of having a fake that people know is fake but yet still have faith in is, is fascinating to me. There's lots of examples of documents that people kn- know are fabrications, but yet still circulate as real and have currency for some people. And the the you know the Runestone is stupid and, and and kind of funny, but you know there's some of these documents that are really damaging. Probably the most damaging is the protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, which were discovered in 1903. Um, originally discovered in Russia and they, they have this plot of the, the Jews are planning to take over the world and, it, and it's a really uh, to displace Christians and all the kinds of things. It's revealed to be a forgery uh, by a, a London newspaper in 1921 and it's clear that, that Russian security agents had fabricated this document for political ends having to do with things in, in Russia. But despite that, it's a document that people around the world still have faith in it, thinking it's real. And among the people who thought it was real was Henry Ford, who actually spends a lot of time in his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, saying it's real. And he even publishes a weird book about it saying it's real. Um, And it's a text in white supremacist circles that it still has a lot of currency, despite the fact that it was pretty definitively proven more than 100 years ago to not be real. Uh, those kinds of documents fascinating. What is it that leads people to believe in hoaxes that are clearly or fabrications or, or forgeries that are, uh, despite, you know, the evidence pointing to the fact that they're fabricated? Um, you know, and obviously, those kinds of things are, are the Most dangerous of these four. Yeah, that's more
1: sinister than Robert Springer, Joseph Cozy passing off a Washington or Lincoln signature to buy drink money. Yeah, no, I mean, so I
0: think that's you know that's definitely if you think about the categories of things, I think that's you know much much more in the um, fabrications that have have a political end to them. there's a bunch of them though that in the twentieth century. Should we talk about the twentieth the, the late twentieth century ones? Probably 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 the more interesting one that many listeners may know about
1: is the Canuck letter. Yeah, tell us about the Canuck letter, David.
0: All right, so the Canuck le- so cast your minds back to the nineteen seventy two Democratic primary as as one often does. Um,
1: this is a little bit like the Langhorn letter, isn't it? In that is not it It's written with the intention of having some sort of political impact.
0: Yes. Oh, oh definitely, so, so, a, and an, an immediate political impact right. as opposed to sort of a, yeah, a possible political. Yeah. So, so 1972. So uh, there are several people who are running for the Democratic nomination, and one of them is is Ed Muskie. And a letter appears, a letter to the editor appears in the Manchester Union Leader. Uh, as listeners may know, uh, New Hampshire has one of the earliest primaries, and so it's very critical in in the election. And Muskie was from Maine. And Muskie was from Maine. And the letter claimed that Muskie uh, or a Muskie aide had get, made a slur against Canadian Americans, calling them Canucks, which I guess was considered a slur at the time.
1: Um, it was a bunch of dumb Canucks, right? Wasn't that the phrase? Well, it, it's
0: it's the, the the question that that the letter laid out was, was how did Muskie understand the plight of African Americans if there are very few African Americans in Maine and the aide. Supposedly said, um, well, we don't have any blacks, but we have Canucks, and the the implication was there's a whole kind of racial stuff politics going on there that that that, um, for, yeah. and supposed
1: Canadian Americans are a prominent voting, voting, voting a demographic in name
0: because and, and in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. So um, and supposedly uh, in this letter, which was very bad, poorly spelled, it had sort of weird colloquialisms in it. Um, This is what Muskie's aide said Muskie laughed This gets published It becomes a controversy Because of the Canadian American population In New Hampshire Muskie gets asked about it And he has this speech In which um, He breaks out in tears Because it He's overwhelmed, overwhelmed emotionally by this accusation, which turns out to be entirely fabricated because some guys in uh, the Richard Nixon uh, campaign had fabricated the letter uh, to embarrass Muskie, who was looking to be the biggest threat to Nixon's re-election. Uh, and
1: this, of course, is the Nixon campaign of dirty tricks and war- ultimately culminating in th- Watergate. Yes, this is what seems to be one of the first
0: events in that series of... of dirty tricks uh, by by the committee to reelect the president. Uh, the um, people who seem to have actually authored the letter were Don Segretti, who uh, was a California lawyer, uh, and Ken Clawson, who was a Nixon campaign uh, aide. Uh, and obviously this only came out much later during the, the uh, investigations in, into Watergate. That this was a fabricated letter and that it sunk the Muskie campaign. Um, that I think is a fascinating case of of, of you know tr- using forgeries to try to sort of shape the political process. In this case, it's pretty it, effective. It's, uh, remarkably, I mean. So Muskie at the time, Nixon in nineteen seventy-two, in the early seventy-two, was not polling very well. The war in Vietnam was not going well. There were other political scandals, and it looked like. You know, Muskie was going to be a real challenge to to Nixon in the November elections, and uh, Muskie's campaign, you know, completely flounders at this point, and he drops out of the race. So, uh, I think that's a really fascinating example of a forgery uh, for political intent with with political intent. That works. Yes. Another sort of weird forgery from about the same time is the Howard Hughes autobiography. Um. And this was uh, from 1971, so it's actually sort of the year before. Uh, Howard Hughes was, I think uh, many listeners may know this, was a, was a pioneer in, in aviation and in film. Um, extraordinarily wealthy, but he was also highly paranoid and germophobic and became a recluse in the 1950s. So there's often speculation about what was happening. Uh, What he was doing in his seclusion and what his life was like And his choices and what have you, his mental state And a journalist by the name of Clifford Irving Claimed uh, to have helped Hughes write his autobiography And he goes and he gets a contract with um, McGraw-Hill He gets in the contract with Time Magazine to publish excerpts from it and it turns out that Irving had fabricated the entire autobiography on the assumption that Hughes was such a recluse that he wouldn't challenge the fake autobiography and, was, and therefore Irving could make a lot of money. Hughes, however, did challenge it and Hughes and his lawyers came forward and said, look, this is document that, that he is purporting to be my autobiography is a, is a fraud and a forgery and... and uh, Irving ends up going to jail for for fraud, uh, for for a while. And I think it's sort of another sort of fascinating case of someone trying to. And this this one seems to be much more about making money and and causing a, a literary splash than it is
1: about a, a political objective. So it's more in the category of hoax and hoax for personal gain rather than. Yeah. I
0: th- I think so. It's hard to it's hard to tell what his motivations were.
1: Harm anyone?
0: Now there's there's a third one from the seventies though that, that it's very hard to categorize, and that's the Education of Little Tree. Have You ever read the Education of Little I Tree? No, yeah. okay. Have you? Yeah, I read it a long time ago. I think I read it before they knew it was a forgery. Actually, I must have read it before they knew it was a forgery. Uh, so this is a a book uh, that claims to be the autobiography, published in nineteen seventy six. Claims to be the autobiography of Forrest Little Tree Tucker. It's a story about this kid who is an orphan. He he's sent to live with his grandparents, who had some Cherokee heritage. This takes place in the twenties, and his grandparents teach him the ways of, of, of the Cherokee people, and he learns about loving nature and and how to be. He also learns how to bootleg whiskey. Um, but it's a novel, or it's a autobiography about. Uh, respecting people regardless of their racial background, and it was, uh, for a while, a very popular book, and people saw this as sort of a, a interesting text, thinking about uh, what the sort of racial politics were of the, the late 1970s and where how Native Americans fit into this and the sort of environmental message of this book. Well, it turns out, and this only became clear in 1991, that the author uh, was a man by the name of Asia, Asia uh, Earl Carter, who was a Klansman, a speechwriter for George Wallace, and who actually had once tried to run against Wallace as a more rabid segregationist than, than Wallace was. Wallace
1: was too liberal for him.
0: Yes, but he's one of the, he wrote the draft of the "Segregation Now, Segregation Forever" speech. Really? Okay. So, so this guy, you know, so the the. Uh, there's a huge disjunction between being the life of who this person was and this text, which presents a very different version of of, of, of of, who he is. Now, the intriguing thing about this is the book basically at that point got recategorized as a novel. Um, they actually made a movie of it after people realized it was a forgery. Um at one point, I think Oprah had it as a part of her book club until somebody explained to her like who the real author was. And then she said, actually, I had to take it off my, my bookshelf. Um, but trying to figure out why Carter wrote this book, you know, what the his motivations were, uh, whether he was trying to sort of repent in a weird way for his previous Political choices, or people don't know, but I think it's a sort of fascinating example of a fake text um, that that has taken on a a sort of a different life now as a sort of weird
1: novel. Wow! Yeah, (laughs) it's well, historian, historian very uh, alerted response by me, by the way. Well, it was a historian,
0: a guy named Dan Carter, who, who has written uh, extensively about, about racial politics in the American South, um, who uncovered this the, and, and published about it in the New York Times in 91. And, it, and it, you know, it was a book that people thought of as very one thing and then immediately it's like, oh, actually, now it looks like something else entirely.
1: Was he still alive when it was uncovered? No, That's he
0: died in nineteen. So he died shortly after it was published.
1: Right, so it would have been interesting had he lived. Oh, to be a...
0: sure, <laughs> there would have been some questions. Um, you know, there. His family has answered some questions about the book. You know, because the the book says, "Look, I, the, the child has some Cherokee ancestry." The family says, "Look, the Carter himself." may or may not have had some Cherokee ancestry, although the, the number of, of white Southerners who claim to have Cherokee ancestry is, is some people argue, probably uh, uh, grossly inflated.
1: Um, right, that's a, that's a fascinating story. And that, that brings us to the 80s. And, and, and we, get, we get some really unusual forgeries in the 80s, perhaps one of the most famous, which also goes to or, American origins, mm. I think is what we see from Mark Hoffman, yeah. Who in the in the early to mid '80s um, achieved some prominence and a great deal of success and and wealth for a time, uh, forging documents associated with the founding of and the establishment of Mormonism and the origins of Mormonism. So I think his first one was he claimed to have found a document in a in a in a 17th century King James Bible that that um gives that that proves that Mormonism had a longer pedigree than than uh, many people had supposed but he he forges a number of, he himself is of a LDS background originally um, and he forges a number of documents associated famously something called the salamander letter which questions uh the the discovery of the t- tablets um, by Joseph Smith
0: yeah so in, um, in the the canonical version of the story Joseph Smith is led to the tablets by an angel, and in this letter, which I think is supposed to be written by one of of Smith's uh, personal secretary, suggests that he was following a salamander, um, which you know, cuts to the core of the the sort the, of the theological origins of, of of Mormonism.
1: But he, to keep himself, I mean, uh, as our tone has suggested, for a lot of these individuals, they're kind of. Roguish losers. I don't know that that's the right way to describe many of them, or, mm. or, uh, you know, if you think about Robert Spring or Joseph Cozy, Mark Hoffman's story takes a rather sinister turn, and people will be familiar with this because there was a Netflix series that that uh, a lot of people watched during the first lockdowns about this called Murder Among the Mormons. Uh, I think that's what it was called. Um, based on this, but, uh, He killed a couple of people using bombs to prevent to try and prevent his exposure, and he's now in prison in Utah. He's still there. Wow. Um. So so his his story, as I say, uh, you know the others, or some of the others. I'm not talking about the creators of the protocols of the Elders of Zion, but you know Joseph Cozy or Robert Sprigg, They're trying to make a buck, or pull a literary fast one. But uh, Mark Hoffman actually becomes a, a murderer. In order to try and cover up his his crimes and his well, found out.
0: I mean, I, my, my, my understanding, at least, is that he grew up Mormon, but then became alienated from his faith. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's actually trying to actively undercut the, 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 the theology of the denomination.
1: Yeah, I mean, a friend of the pod and somebody we've spoken to before and a great historian of all of this... Um, Ben, ben Park has written about this. And when, when, the, when the Netflix series came out, Ben wrote some, some things. In fact, we should probably link to them on the show page. But uh, yeah, so, so Mark Hoffman is an interesting case. One of the more interesting recent ones. And a, shortly after that, and this is perhaps more like the, uh, the rune stone, uh, we get a material forgery again, or, or a fraud, or a fraud, I guess is a better mm. way to put it, which is Thomas Jefferson's wine How? is discovered in the mid nineteen eighties, um, the provenance of this, unsurprisingly, is very uh, murky. But a German wine did someone find it in their basement? Like how? Well, a German like... wa- yes, a German wine dealer claims that uh, uh, several bottles, actually I, I, bottles of wine, allegedly purchased by Thomas Jefferson, were discovered in the basement of the home that he had owned. Or he had lived in, he didn't own it, when he was ambassador, U.S. Uh, minister in Paris. And he sold these, and the wine was in period bottles. Okay. And engraved on the bottles, it said TH, full stop, period, J, period, Thomas Jefferson. So his initials were on the bottle. Does, um, does, does, and does Jefferson usually them, inscribe his initials on bottles? Not to my knowledge, but he did use his initials that way. He abbreviated his name Thomas, not with a T, but with a TH, which mm. was common at the time. However, when he abbreviates his name, when he uses, oh, sorry, uses his initials, I should say, he writes TH colon J, full stop. Okay. I don't know. I mean, Jefferson's use of punctuation is idiosyncratic anyway. So, So there's a slight anomaly there. A lot of people buy this. Oh no, no, there isn't a lot to buy, but they they buy the story. There's okay. a book about this that comes out in the in the early hots, um, or about 2008, called "The Billionaire's Vinegar," um, and and, uh, Christopher Forbes, who's from the Forbes family, as in Forbes Magazine, the the the, the billionaires, mm. he buys one of these bottles for 157 thousand dollars. Bill Coke, who's one of the Coke brothers, okay. and he's a collector of all kinds of things, but uh, including wine, but also historic artifacts and documents, buys four of them for $500,000. And testing is undertaken, they don't open the wine to test it, but they test the bottles and the glass to try and determine whether it's legitimate or not. And it seems to be until is a former MI5 agent involved in this story who's carrying the wine across the Atlantic. Um, they, it seems that the engraving was made with modern tools. Ah. So the tools used to make the engravings. The bottles are probably 18th century bottles, but the engraving is after 1787 when these were allegedly uh, uh, purchased. For other evidence, uh, Cinder Stanton, who's who's somebody I know who was a historian of Monticello at that time, and really knows the documents, really knows, and she edited Jefferson's account books. She knows everything Jefferson ever spent, because Jefferson kept these incredibly detailed account books, and Cinder was the one one of the editors along with James Baer of, of of Jefferson's account books and she said there's no evidence of him making this purchase. He bought a lot of wine, wine. but not this wine <laughs> at that time, because there's no evidence for okay. you know, and we you know, we have daily accounts of what he's spending. And so she questioned this from the outset. This German wine uh, trader um insisted it was legitimate and he's been involved or was involved in a prolonged legal dispute with bill coke in the early 2000s over this that eventually didn't really go anywhere it's not unlike the current case with prince andrew it was a civil case mm. and the uh, german wine collector refused or sale uh, wine merchant refused to contest the case and said a court in new york had no jurisdiction over this and um and so he defaulted but there was no real settlement as a result. So so this was unsettled, but, but it is a it's an interesting forgery. Bill Coke says, Well, I bought what I thought was Thomas Jefferson's wine and I bought the most famous fraudulent wine in history or something <laughs> along those lines. Seems to have kind of laughed it off, which you can do when you're a billionaire. Yes, I was thinking. You've dropped half a million dollars on, yeah. on some four bottles of wine. Chump change friend. So so that's a that's an interesting I don't know whether that falls under the it, well, it's that... more like the rune
0: stone. Well, no, because I I think the runestone has has political implications to it, right? Because I think one of the things that the runestone, and and there were actually a bunch of other similar kinds of runestones that have been discovered in various parts of the United States. So I think one of the implicit claims in things like the runestone is that the United States belongs to white people, and they have a historic claim to it that, that... challenges Native American claims to do right. to, to land right if, if you can say look this land in Minnesota has always been or at least has been for you know 700 years been been claimed by by Scandinavians then we can you know displace whereas this guy seems like you're trying just trying to make a lot of money
1: yes this 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 is a hopped up version of the hey I'm gonna sell you Abraham Lincoln's love letters exactly or uh, letter written by George Washington. This is a slightly, you know, this is wine that Jefferson owned, supposedly. All
0: right. So I got one final example, and this is from 2004. So we're almost to the present. Uh, And these are the Killian documents, sometimes also called Memo Gate, because everything was gate then.
1: Yeah, I have to confess to our listeners that I had totally forgotten about this until you reminded me about it an hour ago. (laughs) So so take it away, David. All right. So
0: so the context (laughs) for this, 2004 presidential election uh George W Bush is running for for re-election. He's uh, the Democratic challenger is, is John Kerry who was a, a Vietnam uh, war hero, had three purple hearts, etc., etc. There was a concert, there were debates about Bush's military service. And they had been going back for a while, but they have, had surfaced especially in this election. Bush uh had, did not fight in Vietnam, but he was a member of the Texas Air National Guard. And there were questions about whether he had first used um, his father's political influence to get him into the National Guard, um, or and whether he actually then proceeded to serve in the National Guard, do the the um, you
1: know
0: service that he was he was contracted or signed up to do uh, with them. There were claims that he had been AWOL, uh, but various files had been missed, had gone been missing or destroyed. Um, in the subsequent years, uh, just before the, uh, election, uh, in September, um, of 2004, CBS runs a story, uh, that is purportedly personnel files from Bush's commanding officer, uh, a guy named Jared Killian, uh, in the Air National Guard, which say that Bush didn't show up, and when he did show up, he wasn't a good, um, uh, Airmen um, and dissipate orders and all those kinds of stuff, and they show these files on TV as being sort of evidence of uh, Bush not 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 not, uh, being a good 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 airman, and almost immediately after they run these this this story, uh, bloggers say actually we're pretty sure those documents are fake, and the. Uh, explanation for why they were fake was basically that the the font that was used in this the kind of uh, proportional fonts uh, that were in the documents were not available on commercial typewriters in the early 1970s um, and so these must have been composed on a modern computer using uh, uh, Word processing software, not a nineteen seventies typewriter.
1: Well, they shouldn't have written them in wingdings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but but this goes, David. So sorry, can, can can I offer sure. two, two, two responses to this? One is the the better forgers that we've seen, going right mm. back to fellows like Spring and Cozy, really try to either use period paper or ink or to recreate it, and it's a really it's a rookie mistake not to do so. So they should have got an old Smith Corona no, no, to exactly. take these things up. But does that suggest, and and I'm sorry, I haven't let you finish the story. Yeah. Uh, was this intended to deceive or was it intended to fail, which would have benefited Bush because the story goes away then? Yeah, well,
0: that's a good question. I'm not sure they've, I'm not sure they've actually figured out where these documents came from. So a crude no, fake, fake could work it, another, It, it, it could a deep be fake. fake. It, it, it could be a, a, you know, a red herring designed to, to distract things. Um this ultimately sinks Dan Rather's career because Dan Rather was the guy who was hosting the show that, that put it on and they initially defended the documents, saying they had authenticated them, whatever that means, uh, but then they admitted that they were they were probably uh, probably fake. Um, and Dan Rather resigns and basically is, is forced out of out of journalism as, as a consequence of this. Um, I mean, I think what that, dem- that episode demonstrates first is, you know, we're at a point now in which faking things, if you're clever about it, is actually much easier. I think we have this sort of technology and tools to do to fake things in a way that uh, would have impressed, you know, people like Cozy 100 years ago. On the other hand, our capacity to detect fakes is also increased exponentially. So we're able to know pretty quickly by, by doing various kinds of exam- uh, forensic examinations of documents and, and, and artifacts, whether things are fake, um, you know, and we've got the whole phenomenon that's going to be, I think, prevalent in the next few years of deep fakes and other kinds of fake—not only documents, but fake audio and fake visual and fake photos—that are going to be very hard to distinguish from the real thing, um, at least at first glance. And and I think we're going to think that says to me about you know w- w- the role that that forgers are going to play you know in the the coming years because even if we detect them if the damage is done initially you know if imagine you know hypothetically in some of these cases like in the canuck letter you know we didn't discover that canuck letter was fake until Muskie's campaign was already sunk Um, now i think we're in a media cycle that happens that much faster uh you know even if they found out the. That it was fake two days later it still probably would have been the end of Muskie's
1: uh yeah so there, is, uh, it's testimony to how we've changed in 50 years that that brought down Muskie given the kind of ethnic stereotyping that's entered the political argo um at least on in, in certain quarters you know, now to be sure in the five years we've been doing this, <laughs> no, this yes, yes. so so David I have a question for you but we've got to wrap this up but uh, uh one is We've talked almost exclusively, except for the example you gave of the woman in the 1920s with the Lincoln love letters, yes. about men. And so, so my question to you is: This a male phenomenon, or are men really bad forgers, and they're the ones who get caught? And there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff forged by women that's actually hasn't been exposed. Uh,
0: that's a question that's unanswerable, Frank. I don't, I'm not sure if you know, that's me. I think the question about some of these forgeries is: is You know, we know about the ones that were caught. Um, you know, we don't know about the forgeries that have not, there could be in the text that we as historians use all the time in teaching or in research that may not be real. And our capacity to sort of suss those out is, is uh, quite challenging. Um, it's hard
1: enough to interpret
0: documents, let alone, alone to, to then sort of interrogate whether we think it's real or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and if if the forgers are doing well, we're not we're, we're n- never going to know. Um, and you know, once documents have been sort of authenticated as real, you know, sort of getting that out of circulation is very hard. Yeah. Um, interesting. You know, protocols of elders are down. Everyone, you know, like there's well documented fakes. We know who wrote things, um, but yet still people give them credence, uh, because they, they want to believe. What it is they say, even if it's not real, you know. And I think um, we're in a political age right now in which, you know, if documents are faked in the near future, even if they're exposed as being fakes, people are going to say, actually, I think still think it's real. Right. Um, well, this don't... is
1: of a piece with fake news and, uh, yeah, and well, the kind of media landscape we're in. I
0: mean, I think MemoGate the. The things, the killing documents from the George W. Bush campaign, you know, I imagine, you know, you're not the only person who forgot that these things happened um, because it sort of, you know, faded into so the many things. So many things yeah. happened since then. But I think that's actually a critical moment in terms of distrust
1: of, of the media. Because um, terms... Dan Rather. Was a huge figure, a major. You know, he was the last of the great news anchors in many respects. His shows sure. were seen as authoritative figures who were giving you the truth every night. On and the you should trust them
0: because they're on network television, and, and they had a certain gravitas as a consequence of that. You know, and I think the way they got spun in the right wing media was like, look, here here is a mainstream journalist who was trying to sink our candidate. He's clearly partisan. We can't trust them here, and we can't trust them at ever. So I, I think that's a moment in which the, the fabrication actually had, has had real lasting consequences, even if people aren't fully aware of the role that that has.
1: Right. Time for last drops, Frank. What's yeah, about? well, actually, we've been talking a lot about documents and documentary editing, and I want to pay tribute to a woman who passed away recently, um, uh, unexpectedly, uh, n- named Jen Steenshorn. And I knew Jen a little bit. She had been a... Um, she worked on the John Jay Papers project, where she was an editor there for many years. Uh, I think I think she has worked on seven volumes in that series. Uh, she also worked on the Papers of George Washington, and I got to know her a little bit when I was in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, and she was working on the Washington Papers. She was a lovely woman, very very nice. She was always good to talk to. Uh, you know, I, I would. We sought each other out at various um, University of Virginia social events that we might be at, at the library Mm. and receptions and things like that. Uh, And she was just a very, very nice person. Documentary editors do great work, and they're often unheralded. She was a very active presence on social media, on Twitter in particular, and a very positive presence on Twitter, which was not always true. (laughs) Uh, And she passed away uh, unexpectedly uh, recently, and I just want to pay tribute to her. Yes. Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um Yes, it was, it was very sad. I know that lots of people were, were were shocked by that. People who knew her personally and people who only knew her, um, I guess personally, but only on, on Twitter, were 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 very much struck by that.
1: What about you, David? What uh, have
0: you got? So I just want to point people to a very interesting story that ran the Washington Post, uh, by run, produced by a team there, where they are trying to document, and it's still an ongoing project, document. Slave owning among members of Congress, and they've documented hundreds of members of Congress um, from I think 37 states that were either slaveholders while they were in Congress or before they were in Congress or after they were in Congress. But it really speaks to, um, you know, how powerful an interest slavery was as an institution politically, how pervasive it was uh, before the Civil War and in, even afterwards. They, they document that. Form, former slave owners remain in Congress you know, well into the 20th century um, and the ways in which slavery has shaped American politics. So it's, it's an interesting story. There's some interesting graphics that go along with it uh, that, that are sort of worth looking at as, as a way of uh, chronicling the impact of slavery on politics.
1: Right. Excellent. Okay, David. Cheers. Till next week. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs>
0: The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.